0: So we are going through Mark, we are exploring the book of Mark, and uh, as you know, Mark is one of the four eyewitness accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This, if you are counting, is the 75th sermon in Mark. And so I just want to remind you briefly where we are at in Mark, because I haven't done that for a while. Uh, Remember, Mark is divided in three parts. So Mark chapter 1 to Mark chapter 8 is the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. We've done that. Yeah. We've already done that. Praise the Lord, right? Mark chapter 8 to verse to chapter 10 covers the journey to Jerusalem. And Mark chapter 11 to chapter 16 is Jesus in Jerusalem. And there we witness the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you figure out from that what I've just said that we are in the second part of Mark, the journey to Jerusalem. He has left the ministry headquarters in Capernaum, and is now in the region of Judea because we are in Mark chapter 10. Now, this morning we saw Jesus welcome the mums and Tots, as I as I called them, and as he blessed those uh, children. Well, that work has now finished. And Jesus is getting to leave um, where he is, uh, but he's, as he's just about to get up, right, another visitor has arrived. That often happens, isn't it? You're just about to leave, and then somebody turns up. Well, that's what's happening here. And the person who has just arrived is called, is often called the rich young ruler. And the encounter between this man and Jesus has really vital lessons to teach us, particularly about eternal life. What does it mean to have eternal life? And I just want to share three observations from this passage that for those of you who have an outline, I only printed five, I'm afraid, but for those of you who have an outline, uh, it's, um, uh, it will help you to follow along. But for those who don't have, I'll try and uh, be as clear as I can. The first thing we observe in this passage is that everyone is searching for eternal life. Everyone is searching for eternal life. That's our first point. So as I've said, we see here in verse 17 that the babies have come, they have smiled, and they have been held in the warm hands of God. By the way, it must have been amazing for those babies who have God- audio you in his hands. That's just amazing, isn't it? They've been held by God, they have been held by Jesus, by God the Son. It must have been amazing. Now, we're not sure when, but sometimes after that event, Jesus is getting ready to leave and go elsewhere. And our narrator, Mac, has landed us on the scene, as it were, uh, like a BBC cameraman, so to speak. And he's there. And if we're imagining this happening, Jesus is just about to get up and go. Uh, He's motioning for his disciples to pack up, guys. Let's ready to move on to the next town. And then, as I said, suddenly the camera switches. If we are watching this on video, it switches to a man. Right? He's running in the distance uh, and he's running towards the house where Jesus is. And if the camera zooms in on this man, we can see he's dressed in expensive clothing, but he's running. Who is this man? Why has he come to see Jesus? Well, Mark answers those questions in verse 17. Let's look at verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, that is Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him. I just want to pause there, just briefly there. This is puzzling. We need to imagine this, what's going on. This is very puzzling, isn't it? Uh, We know this man who's kneeling before Jesus is filthy rich. Right, Because you can see that from verse 22. He has great possessions. We also know from Luke chapter 18 that this man must be a ruler. We think Luke calls him a ruler. We think probably most likely a ruler of the synagogue. But he may also just be maybe a great person in his family. Or perhaps a member of the Sanhedrin. Right, So he's a very important man. And the other thing we need to remember is that Matthew... Lee, Levi Matthew, one of the disciples who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, uh, of course, uh, knows all about money, of course, doesn't he, Matthew, Levi? And uh, he's seeing all of this, and when he remembers this incident, what he remembers is that this isn't just any rich guy. He remembers that the man is young. (laughs) Matthew, of course, would notice there's money there, but he's a young man. And so Matthew really records that. So often this man, who's kneeling before Jesus... Is called the rich young ruler. Now, so this man coming to Jesus, we might say is in the top 1% of the country, right? He rubs shoulders with the most powerful in Judea. He's an eye achieving influencer. And yet this man is falling at the feet of Jesus. A carpenter from Nazareth. These two people are worlds apart if we're looking at them, right? So if the man is kneeling, that can only mean one thing. He's desperate. What has forced this man on his knees before Jesus? Well, Mark tells us. Let's read on verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, this is what has forced him on his knees, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The man is on his knees because he's searching for eternal life. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, he means he wants Jesus to tell him how he can make sure that he'll spend eternity with God. He is longing for assurance of salvation before Jesus. He wants to make sure that when he dies, he's going to go to heaven. But it's more than that. I think what he also is longing for, really, is longing to have a life that is worth living. He wants to know that everything he's doing now is amounting up to something useful in the end. His worth, his status is not satisfying him. He has everything, money, power, influence. But it's not enough. He recognizes that. And he knows the Bible as well, as we'll see. But all of that is not enough. He desires more. And by this definition, therefore, every human being is longing for eternal life. We all want our physical, emotional, social, and spiritual needs to be met. I often quote from the mathematician Blaise Pascal, who said, All men seek happiness. All men and women, they all seek happiness. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. Those who go to war and those who avoid war. It is the same desire, pursued in different ways. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. All men pursue happiness. Why is there this inner longing in all of us to pursue happiness, to live better lives? What's missing? Why do we long for a world where our needs would be truly met? Well, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. In other words, we long for a better life because like the rich young ruler, we know we are created to live in a loving and joyous relationship with God. And we know that since Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden, we have been cut off from the very life of God. We've been cut off from enjoying God, who is the source of all life. So all human beings are living futile, empty lives filled with sin. And this spiritual death that we have, this being cut off from God, has left us wallowing, so to speak, in everlasting emptiness. We are never satisfied. We are longing for God. And so as I thought about this truth, I realized that there's actually a fundamental contradiction at the heart of each human being. And the contradiction is this. Every human being by nature is a rebel. No one does God. They have rebelled against God. They hate God. And yet, at the same time, they want God back. We need to recognize that because that emptiness, everything they are doing is actually a search for God. They long to fill that void. And St. Augustine does put it nicely, doesn't it? That you have made us for yourself, in praise to God, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, in God. I just want to encourage you that if you are a true follower of Jesus this evening, you need to keep this tension in the human heart at the front and center of your thinking. Because it helps you to share the good news of Jesus with people around you. You see, many Christians are pessimistic about evangelism. We don't like sharing Jesus with others because we do not like telling people what they don't want to hear. All right? That's why we don't like it. It's awkward telling people about Jesus because they don't want to, you're, you're beginning to have a conversation with them that you just want, don't want to know. But as we think about what's going on here, we realize the truth is more complicated, isn't it? Non-believers do not want to hear about God because they have rebelled against Him, but they also want to hear about Him, because everything they are doing, as I've said, is a search for satisfaction and longing that only God can satisfy. They miss Him. They miss Him. And they are searching for God in all these dark paths. I like to think of human beings as a sort of a rebellious son estranged from his parents. He wants to go home, right? But he hates living under their roof and under their rules, right? He he would love to eat for free for food. He realizes he needs that, right? But it's the rules he doesn't like. So he's out there wallowing like the lost son until he comes to the end of himself. By the way, if it's a big call, just feel free to close this a little bit. Now, of course the son may never return But as long as there is that part of him that longs to return, there is always hope of him being reunited with his parents. So for us as believers, this is a challenge we need to think about, isn't it? We need to start building relationships with non-Christians. And when we are building those relationships, we need to listen in patiently to where they are searching for God. Because they are searching for God, even as they live actively rebellious against God. And one of the most effective things when you do relational evangelism is precisely that. Listening out where people are looking for God. And when we listen to where they're looking for God we can then redirect them to Jesus as the one they are truly searching for. Redirecting them from those wrong places to Christ himself. Because they are searching in the wrong places. And that's the second truth we learn in this passage, isn't it? The first truth is that everyone is searching for eternal life and, that's the second point, they are searching in the wrong places or we might even say they are searching in the wrong way. People are searching for eternal life but they are doing it in the wrong way. And we see that immediately from the question this man asks Jesus. Look at the question in verse seven. The question is this. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, on the surface, it looks like a wonderful question. No one has asked Jesus this question. Not the disciples, nobody else. This is the first time somebody gets to the heart of what Jesus has come to do. The kingdom is breaking in. And here comes a man who says, yeah. Jesus seemed to know the answer to this. What must I do? Let me ask him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It looks like a great question. But the more you meditate on that question, just keep repeating that question to yourself. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You begin to see there are some cracks appearing in the, in the question, right? Because it seems the underlying assumption of this question is that goodness, first of all, in life is not only something we can achieve, right? It is actually what ultimately gives us eternal life, or at least it's the root to eternal life. Uh, we see that from the question he asked it? good teacher, what must I do to inherit? You are good, what must I do then to inherit eternal life? You know, if you ask this man this question, right? If you ask this man one of those questions that Ray Comfort likes to ask, When you die and God asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? That's a classic question. Ask anyone everywhere that question. Alex loves it. You ask that question, that's a red comfort question, right? You can get to the heart of what this person is depending on for salvation, right? If you ask this man that question, there's no doubt about it. I think his answer would be, God must let me into heaven because I've been very good all my life. Uh, how do I know that? I know that because of the way he starts off the question. Not the way he starts off. He salutes Jesus as good teacher. He's saying that because he has been, he has seen and heard Jesus do good things, right? Therefore, Jesus is the one who should give him this. He believes Jesus can give him the answer. So, he, he be, this man believes Jesus is good, not because of Jesus' fundamental character as being the one who is only good, right? No, he believes Jesus is good because he's heard about the things Jesus has been doing. He doesn't yet believe, and he does it, and he won't believe by the end of this passage, in the goodness of Jesus as God the Son. And Jesus realizes this man only thinks Jesus is good because of the things he's heard about. So Jesus, uh, who knows what is in the heart of man, quickly asks this rich young ruler a question to help the man see the problem of his heart. Look at verse eighteen. The question Jesus asks him. I love the way Jesus does this, by the way. Every time somebody asks me a question, he answers with a question. It's always a good thing, isn't it? Because Jesus, why does Jesus do that? Because Jesus likes listening, right? He likes listening. He's a God who listens. So look at verse eighteen. And Jesus said to him, "Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone." Now, when cults and atheists Read this verse. They like to get excited. Then say things that something like, "Ah, you see, even Jesus does not think of himself as God." Of course, they miss the point because later on it will be very clear. Jesus is going to say, "He alone is the eternal life. He alone is God." So the context of the passage is clear that Jesus is God. But more than that, what they're missing here is that Jesus is simply responding to the man's misconception that anyone can be good by human effort rather than by the grace of God. That's the misconception this man has. He, he can think of oh, all the good human beings and he's added Jesus next to that. And on that basis, he's come to Jesus asking him as a, as a good person only. And in fact, this question, the more you meditate on it, the more you realize it's actually trying to, to, to give this man an opportunity to confess that Jesus is God, because Jesus asked him, "Why do you call me good?" Right. So Jesus here, as I said, is responding the man's misconception about the, our human about human effort and the extent to which human effort can commend us to, to God rather than by the grace of God. This man, if you like so to speak, believes that believes that eternal life can be earned by living a good life, as we see from his overconfident. A response to Jesus' full question. Let's read verse 19 to verse 20. Jesus continues with the question Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Verse 19. You know the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Right? Verse 20. And he said to him, This is the response, teacher. All these I have kept from my youth. Jesus, by the way, has cited the last six commandments there, which address our human relationship with one another. The, 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 the commandment there, do not defraud, actually just summarizes command number eight and command number nine. And the rich young ruler is looking at this and he's saying, look, I ticked them all, right? I've done them all. <laughs> this is, I've done it with a straight face. I've done it, right? Uh, one more is there. Where does Jesus go now with this question? The man has told you, I've done it. Give me something else, right? And on paper, as we look at him, we think, actually, <laughs> this man barely deserves eternal life. But Jesus has a different opinion. Jesus says, it is not enough. Look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing, Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now, if you're watching this on video, how is it looking like? I think Jesus is looking with this man intently like that, right? In the face. He's looking deeply in his soul. And we're told he loved him. In other words, he loves him as a human being. And Jesus genuinely admires this rare virtue of his excellent personality. But according to Jesus, this man is searching for eternal life in the wrong way. Because the answer from Jesus is verse 21. You lack one thing. You have everything, but you lack this thing. Go sell what you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. You will have eternal life. And come and follow me. Jesus is saying, look, having a a life worth living is not about depending on your goodness. It's not about working hard to get it. Life with God is following me. Wow. I mean, you've got to let that sink in. He's saying that eternal life is me. Follow me. In short, anyone who is trusting in their own goodness rather than our Lord Jesus, Is searching for eternal life in the wrong place. And as I think about this passage, I realize that the tragedy is that many who claim to be followers of Jesus are following in the same error as this man. And the evidence is all around us. Uh, We see this error of relying on words, not only in Roman Catholicism or New Adventism. We see this error even in supposedly evangelical churches. We suddenly see this error on Christian television where many false prosperity teachers tell us that we must sow a seed, some seed, for God to bless us. They say we must scratch God's back so that he can scratch ours. They won't admit it, but as i feel about this prosperity teaching, I've realized that it's Hinduism. It is the Hinduism, Hinduism theology of karma. What you do, you get back, don't you? We were taught in karma. And of course, it's at the root of mutual prosperity uh, teaching. It is the idea that you can earn God's favor by doing things for God. It's karma. But all of us here, as we sit here this evening, we're also not immune from this danger. All true followers are tempted to try and end God's approval for eternal life. You know, we know in our hearts that we are saved. How are we saved? We are saved by the grace of Jesus alone. You are not going to heaven if you are depending on anything else other than the shed blood of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection power. And yet, we know that that's how we are saved. Right? But we think our good work keeps us in Jesus. Sometimes we think that the grace we receive from Jesus only gets us through the door, right? Okay? For the rest, we must keep buying God off in case he changes his mind on us. We must keep doing good work or so we will lose him. We can't rely on him to keep us, but we can only rely on him to save us. And I thought about this and I thought, why do people believe that? Well, I think one of the reasons we feel like that is we need to work hard to be accepted by God is that we are saved sinners period. Our past sins and our present sins, they weigh heavy on us. There's no one in here who hasn't committed a sin in the past that once in a while doesn't crop up in their minds and they begin to perhaps doubt whether they are God really loves them. We all have a past, and we all have sins we are messing up all the time. And so sometimes that makes us think we must work hard to, in order for God to love us. Sometimes we think of God's holiness. I think of the fact that God is so holy, he won't allow any sin. And as you think about God's holiness, you can start feeling that the only way for God to keep loving you is to keep impressing him, or he will change, as I say, his mind about you. And often people come to church. When they come to church on Sunday, this mentality is there, isn't it? When we come to church on Sunday, we don't want to just hear about the gospel. What we want to hear is, "Tell me something to do this week. Give me something to do this week. I need something to. I need something to do so that God can accept me back." But beloved, that is not the gospel. The good news of Jesus is not asking us to do things for God. It is about receiving what God has done for us and responding only to those things with those things in love to him. If you are trusting in Jesus this evening, you need to regularly repent of this tendency to try and end the grace you have already received in Christ. Which father, honestly, would take kindly to the child continuously doubting that they are loved by the Father? If a child, if a child continuously, if my daughter continuously tried to end my love, I would be very upset. Because I would want her to know that she's totally loved and accepted. And so when we are behaving like we're trying to end God's love, we must repent of that. And we must regularly repent of that. I think it's our greatest sin. Our greatest sin in our Christian life is trying to earn his love rather than living because he already loves us. Now, some people hear that and uh, worry. <laughs> they worry that such truths preached about may result in people living in sin, right? Uh, it's called antimonianism. They may respond with such uh, sinful behavior. And they think, they it's true, but let's not talk about it. But I think that's misguided because such people do not understand that the people who have eternal life are people who have lost already their lives to Jesus and already long to live for Jesus. And that's the final truth we learn in this passage. Having eternal life is... What is is having eternal life? It is losing our lives to Jesus. So truth number one, everyone is searching for eternal life and they are searching in the wrong places. That's truth number two. So tell us what eternal life is, and well, Jesus here makes clear eternal life, that's the third point. Having eternal life is losing our lives to him. So you see here that the rich young ruler has come with a single question. We looked at that in verse 21, okay? In verse um, 17. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus has given him the answer, doesn't he? He gives him the answer in verse 21, right? You lack one thing, this is the answer. Do You want to go to heaven, this is the answer. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and cast iron guarantee. You will have treasure in heaven. You will have eternal life and come and follow me. There are two things that I just want you to notice about eternal life. First of all, Jesus is saying eternal life is a relationship with him. He says, follow me. He's saying, I am God I am the eternal life. Jesus, God the Son, has come to share the life of God with us by cleansing us from sin and plugging us in into God himself, so to speak, so we can draw our life from the Holy Trinity. And this is what we read in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 to verse 12. 1 John 5, verse 11 to 12 says this, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is where? He's in his son. Whoever has a son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. If you have Jesus, you have eternal life. Because when Jesus lives in us, he enables us to share the same divine life with God. And we only share this life with God by becoming a follower of Jesus, that's the key point, a true follower. Because we see here the second thing that Jesus wants us to understand is that following Jesus is not some prayer, sinner's prayer. Following Jesus is losing your order on your life by giving up the very thing you owed dear. It is must involve true surrender. And in the case of this man, the evidence that he has truly surrendered is that he has surrendered his wealth. Jesus is saying to him, look, put me first. But I'm only going to know you put me first if you stop putting your hope in riches. You must now live for me. It's a hard teaching for many of us. Jesus is not looking at your prayer. He's looking to see whether you've really got a changed heart. But here is a shock to this man, right? The shock here is that the man turns down the offer. Look at verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus, as I say, has given him a cast-iron guarantee of eternal life, but he turned it down. He has chosen to walk away. Why has he walked away? Because he's a materialist. What he owns is who he is. The cost of following Jesus is too great for him to bear. You know, I thought about this passage. If Jesus had said to this man, come and follow me, but don't worry about your poor neighbors next door, this man would have followed Jesus. If Jesus had said, come and follow me, but you do not need to attend church on Sunday, this man would have followed Jesus. He has no problem with turning to Jesus without commitment. But Jesus is saying, following me will result in radical change in living. I want you to now live for me, beginning with your money, and the man refuses. You know what's amazing here? In the process, the man has exposed himself as a liar. The lie is in verse 20. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. No, he hasn't. He's a liar. He's already stealing now. Because Jesus is God and Jesus is saying you must give it up. But now he's holding on to it. Already. It's not easy. It belongs to Jesus. Jesus is God. He's telling you you must give it up. And he's refused, already Is stealing from God. But more than that, this man is a liar because you see, Jesus is God because he has failed the first commandment. The first commandment is "You shall have no other gods before me. And this man has many gods, many great possessions. Jesus is God claiming authority over his life. He's saying, I am your God and I want you to live for me. Nothing must stand between us and the man has said no. And you know what? This is the call of following Jesus on all of us. Jesus is calling on you to have this radical commitment to him. This is eternal life. Eternal life is not church membership. Eternal life is not baptism. Eternal life is not Uh, saying the sinner's prayer, eternal life is radical turning to Jesus, a wholehearted commitment, surrendering to him, such a commitment that results in a reordering of your priorities in life. That evidence must be seen. This is eternal life. Surrender to Jesus your God. Now, of course, what Jesus asked for us, what might be a God for us, will vary for people. For this man, it was his possessions. And we'll look at them next week. But for others, it may be different things. But the key thing is that there must be a change that results in complete surrender. There must be a chaos effect where you bring your entire life before God. And you now only become a steward of your life. And the question for you is this, do you have this wholehearted commitment to Jesus as your Lord? Or we should ask it differently, do you have eternal life? I think you need to take this question, all of us, we need to take this question seriously. I had to ask myself this question. Do I have eternal life? Because that's the question that the passage is posing to me. And it is a serious question because this passage is warning us that it is possible to get very close to Jesus, hear him speak tenderly to you, and even be committed to his words, know the Bible inside, in and out, but have no eternal life. Proximity and outward signs do not translate into conversion. There must be real change of heart. Has Jesus become your everything? I think this man, to some degree, is blessed because he walked out publicly. And I'm sure the church history tells us that the man eventually came back. We don't know, but that's what tradition says. The public walking is in some sense blessed because I fear, because people can correct you if you do it publicly. There is hope for Joshua Harris, isn't there? Because people can email him. They know it publicly now. I'm more concerned about Joshua Harris is that still attend church. Outwardly, they are here, but their heart is far from God. They have not experienced conversion. Many people have walked away secretly, and that's the danger that we must examine ourselves in this area. And we should note clearly that after this man walks away from Jesus, is there something that puzzles you here, beloved? What shocked me in this passage is the silence of Jesus. Jesus doesn't run after him. Jesus who came to seek and save the lost doesn't run after him. The man came running to Jesus Jesus is going to get up. He's going to instruct the disciples and move on. The offer has been made. It does not run after him. You know, we can have a whole host of sermons about what this teaches us on how we do church. Yeah? I think there is something in that. As I said, Thomas Manton preached seven seven sevens on this. I'm sure there's an application around that. But I just want to bring it down myself. I think what this means for me is that this is a warning to many of us. Time and time... We hear the word of God being preached. Time and time, Jesus is speaking to you. Your repentance must be faithful. Your repentance must be real. It must be authentic. You are hearing sermons. In Mark, you've heard, I'm sure, 75 sermons now. And I fear the tragedy for many, even in this church, is still no radical change, No genuine repentance. And you know what? There will come a time when Jesus will simply let you go, your own. He has brought the word of God. The seed has been sown, but you have rejected. You have looked to membership. You have looked to baptism. You have looked to other things, your great knowledge. You have looked to the tradition of this country being the seed of much missionary work. And yet, you have not come to true faith. In Jesus. Let the doctrines you dear not be your comfort. Your comfort must be Christ and Christ alone and the radical turning to Him in true repentance. We must reflect on these things clearly. Now, of course, the disciples are there, and soon we'll see they have left everything. They are following Jesus, and their faith is real. And I'm convinced even here among us, there are those who show the fruit that they are following Jesus. Because they are growing in surrendering more to Jesus. Well, if that's you, beloved, this evening, let this passage comfort you. Jesus is saying, don't miss that. This is a comforting word. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And then Jesus says, you will have treasure in heaven. It's a guarantee. If you genuinely surrender to Jesus, I don't mean selling your position, but genuinely surrender to Jesus, you have eternal life now. If you're trusting in Jesus as your Savior, God has not only forgiven you of your sins through Jesus, he has given you a gift of life with him in the year now. You are united with Jesus forever. And so let this truth then encourage you to take each moment as an opportunity to surrender more and more to Jesus in the most difficult areas. We are always growing in surrender. Even the disciples were. So take that opportunity. You hear someone like this, the someone she say, Lord, I want to surrender even more. Not, remember, not to end my salvation. It's already free. But because you love me. And I'm going to surrender because I'm assured you're making changes in my life. I can see the evidence on the, on the strength of your word. On your strength of your word, I know you have given me eternal life because you say you have if I surrender my life to you. So, Lord, help me to surrender more and more to you in every area. There are many difficult areas that all of us have to grow in surrendering in. You see, the challenge is that many people who profess faith in Jesus, you see, have things in their life that they are simply not willing to surrender to Jesus and the Lord works on those things gradually of course after their heart has completely moved to him he begins then to work out those things in practice first there must be a movement of the will and then that, that with a new changed heart we begin to see in practice things beginning to happen but each Christian has red lines you may not think you got any red lines with God but you do There are some areas of your life where you say, "Eh, I'm just not giving that up, (laughs) right? And you need to be coming before God and ask, Lord, show me my red lines. You know, we talk about red lines in the EU negotiation. I, in the EU negotiation, we want red lines. But when it comes to God, we don't want red lines, right? So we need to come before God and say, Lord, show me my red lines. Show me areas which I need to give up to you so that you can have full control of my life. For some people, the red lines, like this man, is your finances. You just won't let God control your wallet. It's that simple. Now, if you are genuinely surrendered to him and you still realize that's a sin and you're confessing, you're asking God to do something about it, that's okay. But if it's just like, I'm not even thinking about that, then of course the danger is you've already walked away, perhaps, like this man. But if there's an issue around finances, you must bring that before God, and we'll look at that next week, that God should deal with that area. For other people, there are just other things that we can't imagine life without, right? And we love our time too much. We love our video games. We love spending time by ourselves, serving the internet, rather than sharing the gospel. We spend more time doing those things than on Jesus. We need to realize those are red lines, and we need to ask God to remove those red lines and help us to draw us more closer to Him ask God to help you surrender because he loves you and he cares for you. God is saying you belong to me I must, therefore I must be your treasure. You cannot love other things supremely and love me supremely. So let us, all of us who trust in Christ, come before him ask the Lord to help us to wholeheartedly follow him so that we can live or continue to live And grow in living a life worth living. Eternal life. Amen.